I'll be reading from Romans 11:33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his path beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For him and through him and him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Thank you, um, George, for that reading. Uh, beautiful words, amen? Powerful words that kind of point us to uh, the inevitability of God. Uh, we oftentimes kind of try to put God in a little box and say, here's who and what God will do. And every time we do that, God will either kind of say, wait, your box is too small, you need to make room, or he will break something. He will break something to get out of our box. And George read those words so beautifully, I'm really thankful for it. It's a beautiful hymn. Uh, you, don't, you don't necessarily always kind of uh, credit Paul for being the songwriter that he is, but nearly in every letter that he wrote, he is either quoting somebody else's song, which would be what he did here. He kind of compiled verses from Isaiah, Jeremiah, even from the book of Job. I don't know if you recognize the lines from Job in there. How great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. And then this very important point, how impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. As much as we work so hard to kind of try to explain everything that God does, God is beyond explanation, amen? We're never going to be able to put in human terms everything that God does. We're never going to be able to, to outline a, 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 a list of bullet points that will completely tell us everything about God. Instead, God is always going to be beyond us. He is going to be greater than our ways. The other thing as Paul unfolds these, these chapters right here, kind of transitioning, closing out his time of, of theory and of theology in this letter before uh, chapter 12 begins, which will be practice. And I need to just tell you now that we will be starting chapter 12 in the fall. We're going to take a little bit of break from Romans, and we're not going to be calling it celebrating God's good news. We're going to be calling it living God news. Anybody excited about living God's good news? And I hope that you will be. But there are two things in these chapters that he tries to consistently bring forward to us. He tries to consistently make sure that we don't forget. The first is expressed in this last phrase that George just read. The idea that God is bigger than anything that you want to say about him. If you try to say God acts only in this way, God will almost always act in a different way. If you all only say over here, God will only act this way, he will figure out a way to kind of change your mind. And the great joy of reading scripture is that it always is opening us up to some new perspective on what God is doing and how God goes about his work. The one thing that will never change about God is he wants us to be part of his kingdom. Amen? And that doesn't change. The second thing that is central to understanding verses 9 through 10, I want to read some scripture for you, is the, is the undeniability, the unnegotiability 
the exact way in which Jesus fits in the absolute core and essential of who we are as God's people. Amen? We're going to pick up in verse 30, starting in chapter 9, and we'll be reading into the first few verses of chapter 10. I encourage you to read along with me. What then are we to say? Gentiles who did not strive for, and again, when Paul uses this idea of righteousness, it isn't that he's saying that you're not trying to live the way God wanted you to. It is the idea that you didn't come to know God as just keeping righteous things. Instead, you came to know Jesus who changed your life and then you followed in God's righteousness. Gentiles who did not strive for righteousness but have attained it. That is, a righteousness through faith. But Israel, and again, that word Israel has a lot of flexibility just in these chapters, not, not to mention the entire book. And here, Paul is particularly talking about the people who have adhered to, who follow the law of Moses, who have the Torah, who claim to have heredity back to Abraham. And particularly, Israel are the people that Paul has already identified and will consistently continue to identify as the folks who want to make themselves right through following a set of rules. But Israel, who did strive for the righteousness that is based on the law, did not succeed in fulfilling that law. Why not? Because they did not strive for it on the basis of faith, but as if, as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. And here Paul is simply reaching back. And it's, it's not that he has to come up with new information for them to understand. He particularly wants to point out, you have made yourself so zealous for God's law, for God's word, but you have missed what God's word has consistently tried to tell you. And so here he quotes from their greatest prophet, both from Isaiah, both in chapter 8, verse 14, and verse chapter 28, verse 16. See, I am laying in Zion with my people, would be a way to interpret that. See, I am laying in Zion a stone that will make people stumble, a rock that will make them fall. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. I just want you to notice before we move on to the next section of scripture, the idea that God puts in Israel's life, in their story, in his story, something that's going to make it difficult. Again, remember my observation that anytime we put God in a box, God will either kind of nudge us and say, your box not big enough, or if we refuse to be nudged, he will break the box. And here we have a very specific reference to that idea. I'm going to put something in your story that's not going to be easy. I'm going to put something in your story that's going to cause you not to rely on yourself, but to rely on me and to trust me. And you will either trust me and believe in what seems impossible to believe in, or you will stumble. Now the neat thing is that when Isaiah said it, and let's pick a number somewhere six, seven, eight hundred years before Christ came. They didn't know exactly what that would look like. But make no mistakes, it still had to ring in their ears. 
God is going to do something in our story that's going to be beyond us, that is going to be more than we can just kind of grasp ourselves easily. We're going to have to depend on God. We're going to have to trust God. And yet when that moment came, when that moment when Christ came to earth, so often it was seemingly the people who had the most investment in God's words, like Isaiah 8 and Isaiah chapter 28, who didn't want anything to do with Jesus. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Let's continue in chapter 10. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they can be saved. And when he says they, he means uh, the Jewish people, that all those of, of his kindred can be saved. And by the way, let's be sure and say, these are people who for the past and you can kind of, again, sort of pick a number, 10, 15 years. For as long as Paul has been actively involved in the mission of Christ, these are the people who have made it their goal to destroy him and make life hard for him and punish him. He has been beaten. He has been flogged. He has been run out of town. He has been called a liar. He's been called a blasphemer by these exact people. Bill, I think your idea of Jesus washing Judas' feet becomes a paradigm for Paul who says, I'm not leaving those people behind. I don't care how they treat me. I don't care what they have done in the past. And maybe he even recognizes what they will do in the future. Paul, less so than Jesus. But he says, I still want them to be saved. I can testify that they have a zeal for God. But it is not enlightened for being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own. They have not submitted to God's righteousness. God's righteousness is the idea that Jesus is the only non-negotiable. Jesus is the only essential in the story of who we are as God's people. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Somebody please say amen to that great truth. There's so many things that when we read 9 through 11, we can get confused on. And we can head off and chase rabbits. And you may say, Alan, you chased all kinds of rabbits last week. Well, make no mistakes, that's not all the rabbits I could chase. So you can say, thank you, Alan, for not chasing every rabbit. Please? There you go. All right. Good. But what we need to know that it always brings us back to the reality that God's answers are always going to be bigger than anything that we can completely understand. And secondly, that no matter how big God's answers are, there is one answer that never changes, and that answer is Jesus. And I am thankful that Jesus is mine, and I'm thankful that Jesus is yours. And I'm hopeful that Jesus is for all of us. And if you're here in this place, and you're kind of confused sometimes about as we proclaim the word, and we, we bring it into its focus and where it comes from in the Bible, if you in any time miss it, make no mistakes, Jesus is the bottom line. And your response to him not only affects you today, but it affects the way your life will play out for all eternity. 
Paul develops an argument here. If this sounds a little bit like a rabbit, it'll just be a short one, so follow me with it. Paul develops an argument here that goes like this. First of all, Jesus came to the Jews. And when I say that, I don't just mean that he landed in Bethlehem. I mean that God had a plan in place all the way back to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, where he calls a man named Abram at that time, who you probably know more as Abraham. And he said, I am going to bless the whole world through you. And so it is that Jesus is born, generations and generations, more than a thousand years after Abraham, Jesus comes from his lineage. God has been working his salvation. God has been working his goodness, his gospel, through this people, these people connected to Abraham. He brought them out of Egypt. He sent them into exile and brought them back from exile, so not so that they could be so special, but so that the world might see this good God who loved them and wanted to bring them into his redemption. Amen? And so it was that Jesus came as a part of that Abraham story. But Jesus' part in the Abraham story not, was not just to be for the Jews, but instead Jesus was the promise to bless the entire world through Abraham. Jesus came to the Jews. But as you read the gospel stories, as you read Acts, if you were to read that, what you recognize is the Jews rejected Jesus. Over and over again, they misunderstand him. Over and over again, they, they seem to be more interested in holding on to their own power, and particularly, they seem to be more interested in defending their own box that they have put God in than stumbling over this stumbling stone that God told them was coming. They saw the miracles and wouldn't believe them. He rose from the dead and they didn't believe it. The Jews rejected Jesus. This rejection persists into Paul's day. And while, Jew, while Paul is concerned about Jews who have believed in Jesus but still hold on to the Jewish law as a way of being right with God rather than depending solely on Jesus, he is much more concerned about those who have truly said, Jesus is not the Messiah. Because in doing that, they separate themselves from God's story. In many ways, as I said last week, they are no longer part of Israel because they have rejected Israel's Messiah. Next, Paul makes the point that Jewish rejections created an opportunity for Gentiles. I just want to be sure here, Paul is stepping into interpreting the cards that he has seen play out. He, is, he basically is saying, the more the Jews reject, the more the apostles went out into the world. The more that the Jews push Jesus out, the more they are exposed to you. And we could even kind of track the story and almost see that it, it seemed to take God really, really throwing the apostles out into the Gentile world before they got the point that that's exactly where he always intended them to be. Paul sees his own ministry as a result of that. Paul persecuted Christians for many years, killing some, arresting many. 
And yet, when Jesus intervened in his life, he no longer stumbled over that stone. Instead, became his great missionary. And he saw the way that Gentiles had more opportunity because the Jews had rejected Jesus. The final thing that seems to be involved in Paul's argument, you could debate about a lot if you wanted to. Because I think in many ways it is Paul saying, this is what I hope will happen. And I don't know that we necessarily have an answer to that. But I would also say that this fits into those who make an argument that somehow or another uh, God is going to, that statement, God will save all Israel, that Paul is predicting how that will happen. I fall on the side of Paul observing what takes place and hoping that in the same way the Jews rejected and it opened a door for the Gentiles, finally, Gentile acceptance of Jesus and their becoming part of faithful Israel will create an opportunity for a greater Jewish acceptance of Jesus. Paul believes that when the Spirit begins to fill Gentile lives, and when Jewish people see that God is working through, bringing His gospel, bringing His good news, bringing His redemption, bringing His love and His blessing to the world through Gentiles, they will no longer want to be excluded from that process. They know that God, the same God that they have read about in their Old Testament scriptures all their life, they know Him, and they want Him to be known by the world, and so seeing his name becoming known among a people who are relatively ignorant about who he is, they will want to get on board and say, we want to be a part of what God is doing. It's a powerful argument. It is his great hope. I don't know how that story will fully unfold because I believe in the same way that as Paul writes these letters, he seems to anticipate a very quick return of Christ. Oftentimes his language will be, in my lifetime, that he anticipates it. And that's not the way it unfolded. And in many ways, I see these as similar kinds of words. I would hope that this would happen, even in my lifetime. And maybe Paul saw himself as having this opportunity to be one of the main players in bringing a great number of Jews back into the kingdom. But it didn't play out that way in his lifetime. Paul develops a very powerful illustration in chapter 11 that speaks to us of how he sees this church, this Israel that God has created being made up both of faithful Jews and of these Gentiles. Read with me starting in verse 13 of chapter 11. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. And he'll go back and forth throughout this book and addressing himself particularly to Gentiles or particularly to Jews. I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I glory, I glorify my ministry in order to make my own people jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. And if the root is holy, 
then the branches are also holy. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, a wild olive shoot, by the way, this is crazy language. You don't take a wild olive shoot and graft it into a, a, a cultured olive tree. But it has a purpose. Really glad, Van, that you're here today. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, a wild shoot, were grafted in their place to share the rich root of the olive tree, the rich root of the olive tree, do not boast over the branches. If you do boast, remember that it is not you that support the root, but the root that supports you. You will say, as a Gentile, Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. What a terribly proud thing to say. Conceited thing to say. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand only through your faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches... Perhaps he will not spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness towards you. Provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And even those of Israel, if they do not persist in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. I'm hoping that you're familiar with the idea of grafting. If you have any roses, if you have any fruit trees in your, in your garden, or if you've ever driven by possibly a, a fruit orchard, you see grafting at work. Grafting is where you have a root and you decide that you need an improved kind of tree to come off that root. Every single fruit tree, every single fruit tree, in this part of the world, is grown on a different kind of root. If it produces good fruit, it's because it's got a set of roots that can withstand the kind of moisture and, and, and the kind of conditions we have in our soil. But what's in the root doesn't produce the right kind of fruit. Roses are the same way. The ro roots that we have our beautiful, beautiful roses on are very different from what produces those beautiful flowers. It is instead intended to survive in the ground. It is relatively easy to cut stock of what you want. I have a beautiful, wonderful, uh, what's our favorite one, Van? Uh, the, the, the little bitty, the cutie, right? The cutie is our favorite one. And you want lots of cuties, and so you cut a little branch of cutie off, and you take another branch of something you don't like, like grapefruit. Somebody say amen. Wouldn't you ha rather have a cutie than a grapefruit? I would. And so you graft it in. You put the two together and you seal them up. And the sap that comes from the root will flow through that branch and produce the kind of fruit that you want. Paul is talking about olive trees. And olives are radically different. You don't pick them one by one. Notice an olive will be harvested a whole tree at a time. If you've never seen it, it's really amazing. 
they have a machine. They put tarps or nets underneath it. They have a machine that shakes it, and they all just come rolling down. And it's great. In Italy, they build, do them on a hillside, and they'll have a network of nets that they have about three trucks. And the whole hillside of olives will come down all through these nets into these three trucks. It's amazing how that works. It's very different than citrus or stone fruit and things like that. So when you are ready to change your tree from one type of olive to another, you cut the whole thing off. Everything goes. Because you're trying to create a new cultivar. You have an improved olive that you want to produce. And so a whole new crop of olives comes out of that old stuff. If you have been to Europe, but particularly if you've been to the Middle East, and you've seen olive trees, you recognize these enormous trunks, and yet the branches that come from them are much smaller. It's because over thousands of years they've been grafted with different varieties because something we, we improve something, and we want something different. A whole new crop comes out. What's crazy is the way Paul describes it is God doesn't cut the whole thing. There are certain branches that he breaks off because they're unfaithful, but he leaves some of them in there. And again, the language of the wild olive. Why in the world would you want a wild olive? You want a cultivated olive. But God wanted that wild olive. In fact, I think when we look at the way God has brought his kingdom together, it isn't just about one kind of wild olive, but it is about a myriad of wild olives. All people from all over the earth that he wants to be part of his root and connected to him. He grafts many and various. He grafts to his root any who will choose to hold on to Jesus. Amen? I want to encourage you to celebrate being grafted in. That requires you, first of all, to humbly recognize that God is greater than you are. And his answers will not always be all that terribly accessible to you. But we trust him because ultimately Jesus is the essential to our life. Being grafted in means that we secondly, steadfastly are guarding against stumbling over Jesus by hard-heartedness. Jesus will always lead us into places that stretch our love further than we wanted it to be stretched. Amen? If you haven't experienced that in your life, then... then you got some stretching ahead of you. And we can either say, man, if holding on to Jesus means I have to love those people, then I'm not sure what I'm going to do with Jesus. It's a really good way to get a branch broken off because that's exactly what the Jews who rejected Jesus said. I love God. I'm not sure what I can do with Jesus. Finally, to celebrate being grafted in, we need to be joining with the Spirit so that together, together, we produce the fruit that God wants. Amen? This is not what Paul is talking about, but I have to say very specifically on this Sunday that it has been amazing to watch the way people have been fruitful in myriad ways through this time of separation when, when things went sideways in a way that we had never thought about and, and never anticipated. But make no mistakes. There is a power in our togetherness 
There is a power in our being gathered together in his name. There is a power in the way that our witness is intensified as a community, not just as individuals. So I'm glad you're here today. I hope that you'll continue to be here. But even more, it is my prayer that coming home, coming back, that having the opportunity to be involved in face-to-face engagement makes you think of somebody who also needs to know Jesus. God wants you to be part of him. That is a message for me. That is a message for you. And that is a message to everyone that you encounter. The question will be, how do we respond to being part of him? His invitation to know Jesus. We're going to sing a song and you're welcome to respond. And we would be glad to start any conversation you want to about this great truth that God wants you to be part of him. If you're online with us virtually, you can use the text that's there on the screen, 979-217-3300, and we'd be glad to start that conversation with you. Whether you come forward, whether you do something very specific today or not, I want to challenge you. Are you recognizing that Jesus wants you to be part of him and more and more part of him? And what are you doing about it? Won't you come as we stand and sing? You were